verses 10 to 15. Thanks so much. Always when I come up here, I tell you how glad I am that that I've been invited to come. But I don't think it really expresses how really glad I am. I mean, genuinely, I was driving into town and I was thinking, what a joy to be able to come and fellowship with all of you. And what a privilege that Mike keeps asking me, even though I'm so so unreliable. (laughs) Afterwards, I'm obviously going to have to leave straight away. And I hope that doesn't uh, deter from my gratitude to all of you, Mike. (laughs) After this, I've got to go to another uh, service and then I've got to get to Bulawayo. So I'll be in a little bit of a rush. But it certainly doesn't deter in any way. I'm unbelievably grateful and so glad. I consider you as my friends, and it's just a joy to be back together with you now. While we're getting to the text, let me say something that I think is quite relevant to where we're going today. It's pretty obvious, but it's worthwhile to say it anyway. There's something that's implied throughout the Scriptures, and we'll remember it as we're going through. But first of all, God made us. God made man, male and female, he made them. We were made by God. But on top of that, we were made for God. God made us for him. We were made by God and we were made for God. But after those two things, it's implied throughout the scriptures that all men, women aren't excused from that, all men have rejected God. We've turned our back on him. We've ignored him. We've said, I don't need you. That's what we've all done. We're all in the same boat. I've often expressed it in this way to you. We all share the same disease. In our DNA, in the very core of who we are, we've said, I don't need you, God. So what God has done is he's given us his word. And really the whole word, the word of God, the Bible, which we come to this morning, is the unraveling of God's plan of redemption for us. He's made a plan that he'll bring us back to him. That culminates in the death and resurrection of his son. But all of scripture is leading to the point where he's going to redeem us. He wants us to come back into his presence. Now this might be your first time that you've ever here, or you might have come many, many times. But in the scriptures, God is calling us back into his presence. That's the purpose of the scriptures. He's redeeming us back to himself. It's very important that while we're going through the service, we remember those three things, created by God, created for God, but we've rejected God. And now we come to his word and he's showing us the way to come back to him. And so it's easy for me in light of that to, to remind you again that the words of men are like a mist, they disappear. So I come to you this morning as a crocodile farmer. You might be asking yourself, well, why would you be speaking to us? Well, Mike gives me a mandate. Mike says to me, open up God's word to the people. So unfortunately, I'm clumsy. I don't present it as well as I should. But I would like it that you are focusing on God's word. Hopefully my words drown out and God's word comes through. That's why I'm asking that while you're sitting in the pews there, you praying to God that his Holy Spirit would speak to you and that my clumsiness would be in the background. That's why we come together. And hopefully that's what's going to happen because when the word of God comes to us, it's written in stone. It changes our lives completely. 
It sets us in a new direction, and it's always a better direction. God doesn't tell us things to make our lives more difficult. He tells us things to make our lives better, full of more joy, more fun. That's why he speaks to us. And so in this text, before we read, I just want to give you the background. The Israelites have come into the promised land. They had a whole series of judges who ruled over them, but they called out and they said, we want to have a king like all of the nations around us. And God in his mercy gave them Saul. But Saul, once he rose to power, like many people do when they rise to power, it went to his head and he rejected God. Remember, it's in his DNA. So he reverted to his default position. He started to glorify himself and he rejected God. And God, after much patience, rejected Saul. And in rejecting Saul, he anointed David. So the evil king is being replaced by the new king. And although God has already ordained it, it takes time, like many things in politics do. And so Saul, his kingdom is descending, and the kingdom of, of David is ascending. And we come to this point where now the conflict has become real. And Saul has rejected David and booted him out and tried to kill him. So much so that he's even tried to kill his own son because he thinks that his son might have made an alliance with David. And David has fleed to the town of Nob. And there he meets the chief priest called Ahimelech. And he says to Ahimelech, give me some food. And Ahimelech says, the only food I have is the consecrated bread. And David says, well, give me that. And he says, and give me a sword. And the only sword that he's got is the sword of Goliath. Isn't that an extraordinary twist in the tale? The only sword there with the high priest is the sword of Goliath. And he takes that sword and he takes that bread and he heads off. And where does he go to? But to his mortal enemies, the Philistines. And he comes to a a king there called Ashish. And he seeks refuge with Ashish. And that's where we are in the scripture. So let me read that to you. That day David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, Isn't this David? The king of the land, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Ashish said to his servants, Look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Just once more, I'd ask that you you join me in prayer as we bring this before the Lord. Our Lord and our God, as we come to this complex text, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would drown out the sound of men and speak your words into our hearts and minds and change us from within. Amen. So we're in this place. Isn't it an interesting place? David has now come into his mortal enemies and he's now in the hands of Ashish. Now I'm going to divert slightly, but you'll see that it comes back and it's going to 
uh, highlight some of the events that are happening. But if any of you know anything about aviation, there's, there's a golden rule. You aviate, then you navigate, and then you communicate. Now, it might seem a small thing, but when the engine goes off, it becomes quite a big thing. Because what you've got to do is you've got to get your maximum glide speed so that you're buying yourself some time. Then you've got to look out of the plane to find the place where you're going to land, your navigate. And once you've found that, then you communicate, mayday, 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 I'm over Missouri Dam and I'm about to land on Art Farm. That's kind of how it goes. Now, I know when I come to you, I don't speak with authority on many things. But when it comes to the golden rule of aviation, I come with a great deal of authority. It's happened to me five times. Five times I've had to get to the point where I say, mayday, mayday, mayday. But why I'm saying that is, is because when I come to a text like this one, where we have the chosen one of God, the guy who's gone and fought against Goliath, he's defeated the giant. He's defeated the giant with a sling. Now, I need to remind you that these events that are happening are real events by real people in real history. This is not some kind of story. It's not a myth. No, no, history backs up. <clears throat> these are real people. This is the person chosen by God. So we have these real events, part of a plan of redemption for God's people, and pointing in the future to the future king, which is going to be Jesus. All of this happening before us. And I remind you of those things. But isn't it an extraordinary story? Here we have the guy who's killed Goliath. And now he's got splinters in his nails and he's got spit coming down his beard and he's, and he's having to fake. You see, we had the fighting king before. Now we have the fleeing and the fearing and the faking king. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go home to bed and I start to dream about my Christian life, I fight giants while I'm in the bed and I'm dreaming. But in the morning when I face reality, I fake and I flee and I fear. So this resonates with me a whole lot more than the fighting king. It makes more sense to me. <clears throat> and I hope that you too will be inspired by what we have before us today because you'll see that the Bible is always real. And it doesn't deal with myths. It's not a Hollywood ending. We have the chosen one of God in the hands of the Philistine king, the Israelite king trying to, 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 um, to kill him. If we have any doubts about that, we know that this same king goes and kills those priests, 85 of them. We can see his evil intent. David is so scared he flees from his own land and he goes into another land where his enemies are and he's going with the sword of his enemies. But we in this text have something that's very unusual. Five verses of history, but two Psalms that explain what, what David is thinking. Isn't that amazing? that we almost have godly commentary of what's happening before us. So here, here we have this fleeing, fearing, um, uh, faking David running away. Very real to all of us because we know that that's like how, how our lives are. 
And yet we have a chance to be able to look inside his heart because he writes Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. We're going to go through a few, a few bits of that. But I want you to remember those two things. Psalm 34, Psalm 56. He wrote those two psalms at the time that he had been captured. So I want to say to you, my dear friends, sometimes the engine stops. Sometimes gravity takes its toll. Sometimes we're heading down to the earth and we aviate and we navigate and we communicate. And the cause of the problem not, 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 might not be the engine in front. It might be the person behind the controls. And that happens. And that's the, the world that we're in. Now, there's a part of this that I want to add. When we're aviating, we also pray. And the big part of it all is the prayer, not the aviate, navigate, communicate. So it goes a bit like this. Pray, 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 av aviate. Pray, 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 navigate. Pray, 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 communicate. We don't know how it ends up. We're sitting in the sky and we, we're about to have a collision with the earth. We don't know whether it's going to be a flat road or, or it's going to be a, a flat field. We don't know what's hidden inside there. We're we, we way up there. We know that it's all in the hands of God. But this is the key point. In spite of the fact that God is absolutely sovereign, He's the one who decides all things, He requires from us that we aviate, that we navigate, that we communicate. If God's going to desert us, we're doomed anyway, we toast. But if we let go of the controls and we believe that God is going to extract us from that place, we toast as well. God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do. What happens in our lives is there are certain people who believe that they're so talented that they can do everything on their own. They think it's the way that they fly. And it's only after the collision that they realize that they're within the hands of a sovereign God. That's just not right. But there are other people who say, well, God is sovereign, so I'm just going to release myself into his hands. And they fail to navigate and, and aviate and communicate. Well, that's foolishness. You see, when we understand and we have faith in a sovereign God, it fuels in us the desire to act in faith. Two things go side by side. David knows there's a sovereign God who's in control of everything that's happening. But in the same time, he's fleeing. He's faking. He's hiding in caves. He's doing all sorts of things. He doesn't throw it up his arms and say, I'm going to lie down and do nothing. Faith in his God fuels him to act. That doesn't mean for a moment that he doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God, that he doesn't trust in him. But we're required this morning to do both things, to believe in God and his sovereignty, and at the same time, that we should be fueled to act in faith. And so we see as he's fleeing and we look into the psalm, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And this is what really settles me about the text. It's not sugar-coated. All of us experience fear. We fear for our children. We fear for our futures. We fear for our businesses. We fear for all sorts of things. And the question is, is when we fear, who do we flee to? Where do we go? 
we are able to see with David exactly where he goes to. And so he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. For those who fear him lack nothing. Lions may grow weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, those are the words of a fearing and, flare, uh, fearing and, and faking David with spit on his beard and with, with splinters in his nails. Those are his words. And I'm reminded of the, the hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I hope that's coming through to you from the word. You know, recently I was at a wedding and I, sat, I was sitting with a friend who I'd known for 40 years. And I said, Tim, you, you, you're looking different. And he said, yeah, I found faith. And, and I'd known f- for the last 40 years that he, he was not a man of faith. And I said, Tim, that's extraordinary. You know, what happened? And he said, no, I just realized that I couldn't drive my own life. I was very good at business. I've got really good relationships. But on the important issues, the, the issues of my soul, I'd lost control. I'd realized that it had become chaotic. And I needed someone to come and take over over the things that I couldn't do. And I said, Tim, that's exactly the same as me. And he said, no, but I've been watching you. You seem like you've got everything worked out and sorted out. And I said, Tim, but that's only because there's somebody who's driving my life. That doesn't mean that I don't have responsibilities. That I don't do everything that I can. That even when I come to a place like this, I don't do as much as I can in preparation of bringing you a message. But I'm absolutely aware, as well as I do, my words will not stick with you unless God is the one who is speaking. But at the same time, if I come here and I quote the Quran or the the blessings of Kabil, the prophet Kabil, or anything like that, God can't speak through those words. There's this amazing mesh, isn't there, of our responsibility and God's sovereignty. So there was Tim saying he, he was good at everything. He was talented at everything in life. But he knew that someone of divine calling had to be the driver of the big issues. The beauty for me is, is that whether you Tim and you're just starting off in the faith or whether you me and you're struggling in the faith, or you, David, who's a mighty warrior in the faith. The same principle applies all the way through. We need someone to, to drive us through the big issues of life. Of course, we carry on with the smaller things. We aviate and we navigate and we communicate. But God is the one and the only one who can determine the landing. And so David is very much afraid. Not just afraid, he's very much afraid. Here he is, and they're starting to say, but is this not the one who slayed the ten thousands? He's notorious. And David's in this place now, and, and he's, he, he's, he's very, very afraid. 
There's no false, false piety. There's no bravado. There's no pride, uh, pride. No. With saliva on his beard, on his beard and dirt underneath his nails, he throws himself into the hands of the creator of all the world. And in that place, he says, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. You see, we can delude ourselves. We can live outside of the mix. But there comes a time where we know we need a driver of our lives. Now, I first thought, I thought to myself when I saw, surely this is not the way for the king to behave. Surely the future king doesn't fake with spit on his mouth. Surely this is unbecoming of the king. But then it struck me that he wasn't there alone. He had come with his men. And he was forced to face that humility to save his men. Isn't it amazing that he's faking, his acting was so good that it convinced Ashish, that Ashish said, well, why are you bringing to me another madman? Send him off. In that process, it saved his men. And then it couldn't help resonating with me what Jesus did for us on the cross. Isn't it amazing that God himself came into our world, that he was born of a virgin, that he walked amongst men, that he was despised and he was rejected. We didn't hail him for what he was. No, we killed him. We tortured him. We spat on him. We relegated him to his death outside of the city, outside of the city walls. The reason we did that was because we considered him as trash. There's no sugar coating on that. This same Jesus who was God and who came to us, we treated him as trash and we put him outside of the city. And he was ready to face that humiliation, to give up all of his glory so that he would provide a path of redemption for you and for me. He forfeited his glory for our shame and we inherit his glory and lose our shame. That's the story of the gospel. The picture that we're getting from David is the unraveling of the great king who is going to come, who is Jesus, who came into our world. He was real. No historian doubts it. He said and he did things that were amazing, different to any other man. And yet we despised him. And in our despising, he provided a way that we could be reunited again with him. Now, I want to turn just briefly away from, from David and look for a moment at Ashish, this Philistine king. Because this is not our only encounter with Ashish. Two, a few chapters later in 27, we'll see him again. Because David will go and settle in his town of Gad, and they will, and he'll stay there for 16 months. And Ashish must be attracted to David in some way. I think it's probably because David's so good at fighting that he shares the plunder with Ashish. I think there's a material reason. And so Ashish has these interactions with this man. First of all, he sends him off and rejects him. Then he has him with him for 16 months. And then after that, 
When they're going off to war, he rejects them a second time because of the influence of the other leaders. It's quite an interesting story, isn't it? He has Ashish interacting with the chosen one of God. He obviously likes him. He obviously likes to spend some time with him. But you can see that the man, this, this, this um, chosen one of God has no lasting impact on Ashish at all. And so he disappears into the nothingness of history, King Ashish. Now, it doesn't escape me, and it's my duty to tell you, that there are many Ashishas in our world. There are many people who come in. They have flirtations with this Jesus. They're presented with the story of this Jesus from time to time. But like Ashish, there's no lasting impact. You see, they like what Jesus taught. They like his impact. But they never get to the point where they interact with this Jesus. It would be wrong of me to say to you, don't be an Ashish. You might come into these, these pews many times. The principle from here is, is that you should get to know God, that you should be redeemed to him, that you should be made right with him. That's why you come here. Now, I don't say that because I have some kind of agenda. I'm saying that because that's what God's word says. Whatever you might think, Ashish misses out on the golden prize. And you don't, you don't want to be, be Ashish. Let me finish off by, by going back to the psalm and just reading from it because it's quite an extraordinary thing how the psalm finishes. He says, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. That makes sense, doesn't it, in, in what we've been saying. That's exactly what we've been talking about. And then he goes on to say, he protects all his bones. <clears throat> Not one of them will be broken. How do we go from this place where the man of God trusts in God and then suddenly he talks about bones and bones being broken? It has no relevance to the story. We've been reading about David. How does it all fit in? Well, actually, it's everything. Because the real story is not about David. The real story is about the Lord. In John chapter 19, we read that the Son of God is betrayed and crucified on a cross. He did not deserve to die, but he chose to. And in the tragedy and the chaos of the crucifixion, we read that our Lord's body is totally disfigured. But not a single bone on his body is broken. Quite unbelievable. In the text that we have before us, and in the commentary behind it, we can see the unraveling of God's perfect plan, that it's all pointing to this Jesus, and that's what it's all about. So it's not really a surprise, is it? Because a thousand years before Jesus came, it was predicted that God's chosen servant would not break a bone on his body. And this same Jesus is the one who's able to fix the biggest problem that you and I have, the problem of our souls, the problem of our rejection of God and all the consequences of that rejection. No one else can. Only Jesus can. He's a sovereign God who remains on his throne today and at his side is his son and he's without a broken bone. And everything about this morning is about that son. The son has no broken bones, and I can assure you he has no broken promises.
And he has promised you this morning, wherever you may be, that when you turn to him, he will not reject you. What he did on the cross outside of the city was for you and for me. It was for our justification so that we would be made right with God, but it's for our sanctification as well so that we would lead a joyous life in the way that we were supposed to live. He does not break promises and he has no broken bones. And this morning as we sit in these pews, he knocks at the door. Now I would imagine that Ashish would let the opportunity go by. But that's not really the question. The question has to be, what are you and I going to do about this Jesus this day? The Bible tells us, seek him while he may be found. That's the call for you this morning. Seek him while he may be found. Because it changes everything. Amen. Sorry, so I'm going to go if that's the right one. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thanking God for his reassurance. Um, just like Nigel saying, can you imagine that sense of fear? I mean, David took on a, a giant, Goliath, and yet he was still very fearful and running for his life and pretending to be mad so that he could escape. Um, quite, quite a story. I didn't know that all that story. So I love teachers like that who explain things better to us. Right, we are going to stand now. Just going to do a couple more songs. Nine, three, two. Standing on the promises, and didn't Nigel talk to us about those promises of God? The promises that He's here all the time for us. We've got to navigate. What do you say? Aviate, navigate, communicate. Let's start by standing on His promises. Nine, three, two. Thank you. 